Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Lord, because you are with us, you comfort us. You prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup runs over this morning. Lord, we have an enemy. We have a foe. How often we forget, Lord, but thank you that we have victory because our Savior has battled and has defeated him. Father, I pray as we dig deep into these verses that we would have our eyes uh, opened, if need be, reopened again, if need be, to the reality of Satan, the devil, and his evil, hellish host that would seek to steal, kill, and destroy in our lives. Remind us, Lord, that we carry your name, which makes us targets. And at the same time, Lord, remind us that there is a greater power because of the one who resides in us than he who is in the world. So we do not fear because you are with us. Teach us, Father, what it looks like to have victory in the face of temptation. And we celebrate, Lord, the good news of Jesus, our Savior, the victor over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The temptation of Jesus. I want to begin with the first two verses and just consider this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now that's an understatement. Can you imagine 40 days of fasting, no food, and at the end of that, you would be hungry as well. Most of us would be dead, I think, at that point. This is an amazing thing to consider. I want to give some context, a little frame of reference. This is the work of God leading now Jesus, the Son, into the wilderness. So let me show you what this looks like here. This is called today Mount Temptation. And so you got to picture this with me, if you will. If you're facing this, you are facing to the west. So beyond here, a long way, is the Mediterranean Sea. Behind us, is the Jordan River, where Jesus was baptized. Just down this way, over here, is the Dead Sea, and then up this way is the Sea of Galilee. So we are facing from the Jordan westward into the wilderness of Judea. It is a barren place, desolate. And trust me, when Jesus crawled up, probably through right up in here, and, and headed up into this wilderness, he was alone, it was hot, there was no food, and even if there was food, he was to deny himself of that. Water is unbelievably scarce, and so I don't know how he dealt with the water, but he was uh, led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and the Spirit was with him, obviously, as he went. So uh, don't miss this now. It's easy to, to, to read this and miss the wording of the text. For 40 days he was in that wilderness being tempted by the devil. Okay, so the three temptations that we read about today happen at the end of those 40 days. And all a host of temptations that Satan brought at Jesus has already taken place by the time that we drop into this 40th day of his fast. 
He has battled and over and over and over succeeded. He has had victory over Satan. And now we're given a glimpse into what might be the most poignant and and challenging of the temptations, especially because of the length of the fast that Jesus has taken in. I want to draw a little attention, too, with uh, just the, the arrangement of Luke's material. You've got to remember, again, Luke has arranged the, the life and ministry of Jesus with a purpose. This is not an accident that he is leading us now into the wilderness after the genealogy and the baptism. Okay, so consider this. The baptism of Jesus, the heavens open up, and the Father himself says, You are my son. This is my son. I'm well pleased, right? So the Son of God is in view. A divine uh, authority and uh, confirmation is given, not only to Jesus, but to all who were there. And then the genealogy. It's like Luke is saying, if you doubted that, let me prove it to you with the genealogical record. Not only is he qualified to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one, he's doubly qualified both his father legally and his mother through the bloodline of Mary brings him into qualification for this. And then uh, the other thing that happens in the genealogy is Adam, the son of God, is brought into view. So we have Adam fresh in our minds, now temptation. Now don't miss that. That's a connection. So let me just spell it out here. It's helpful to see this all on one screen. Adam, referred to by Luke just previously as God's son, he was tempted, along with Eve, right, in the garden. How did that work out? Not so good. Not so good. They failed. And from the garden then, they were banished into the wilderness. And what we know, we could kind of see this as the wilderness of sin and death. This is where death entered the world. This is where spiritually they died immediately, and eventually then physically they died as well. Hmm. Fast forward. Israel is called God's son. Remember, let my son Israel go. And if you don't, I will take your son, Pharaoh, and I will take his life. The Lord worked wonders to release his son, Israel, the the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, from their captivity. In fact, he brought them out with a mighty hand and he brought them through the water. That's significant. The Red Sea was parted through the water almost like a baptism you could see, okay? And then where did he lead them? Into the wilderness. He led them into the wilderness to test them. And how did they do? Or I should say, how did we do? We failed. Just like Israel, in the wilderness, we fail. Every time we fall short, we fail. Now here comes God's Son, Jesus. He is led through the waters of baptism by the Lord to fulfill all righteousness. He is uh, attested by the credentials of his genealogy and now led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And the question that Luke wants us to wonder as we stop in verse 2 is, will he succeed where everyone else has failed? Will Jesus be victorious in a way that no other man has? ever. Hmm. He's facing Satan, the prince of the power of the air. 
the stakes are high if he fails. If Jesus sins in word or deed, in the heart, by what he does do or does not do, he fails completely. He then has to atone for his own sin. There's no cross to atone for the sins of the world. So the stakes could not be higher. Hmm. Now, the question begs, why did Jesus fast, and why did he fast for 40 days? I I can understand a short fast, but you're facing Satan himself. You want to be strong and ready to face him, right? He fasted for 40 days, I believe, because the Father, through his Spirit that was in Jesus, directed him not to eat until he was given direction to eat. Trust me. Trust me. Rely upon me. Let your bread be my will. Let let your confidence be in me, and I will sustain. Right? So he is fasting. Now, why 40 days? Again, Luke wants us to see the connections here. 40 days. This is the exact number of days that Jesus fasted. It calls to mind a number of things. You remember the number of days that Moses was on the mountain when he received the law from God? It was 40 days. He actually fasted as well for those per- that period of time. He made it through the 40 days. Uh, Noah was promised that there would be 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights of rain and flood. And the, the, the flood persisted for 150 days. But for 40 days, it was total chaos and judgment and wrath. People were dying. 40 days. The spies spied out the land for how many days? Forty days. And the Lord said, I will curse you because of your lack of faith, and I will take every day and turn it into a year. You will wander in this desert for 40 years until all of this generation has died off. The number 40 is amazing how often it comes up again and again and again. Jesus fasts for 40 days. Now, there's a few things on display in the fast. Number one, hunger and humanity. Jesus is God. Yes, he is fully God, truly God. And at the same time, he is a man. He he shares in our weakness. So don't miss this. When Jesus goes without food, he suffers. This is a big deal. He feels the aches and the pains, the weakness, the groaning. He feels it. Hunger and humanity. Jesus would have been at this point closer to death, I would suggest, than any other point in his life outside of the cross. He he is on the verge of total breakdown and collapse. Your body, after 40 days of this kind of fast, would enter into a shutdown mode. He would have been dizzy and weak. The heat of the sun, just imagine all of the, the factors here. He is most vulnerable in his humanity in this moment, to fail in facing Satan. We've got to feel the the, the lay of the land. The stakes are high, and Jesus is weak in his body. Hmm. Hunger and temptation. This is the the part that amazes me. Hunger and temptation. It's it's an amazing thing to consider um, how often temptation connects itself to food. Have you thought of that? Now, in, in our day, the, the sin of gluttony just doesn't get enough attention. In fact, I was talking with my wife the other day. I think we should probably have a sermon just on the topic, right? Because it, it's a problem. 
And we actually have a sport on ESPN that I would call a sin. It's gluttonous. They're just pounding hot dogs. What is that? Is that a sport? How do you know when you have committed the sin of gluttony? At what point? Is, is it seconds? Is it thirds or fourths? What, how do we understand that? I think maybe we need to do a sermon on that and just dig deep on that. Hunger and temptation have a long-standing history in the story of Scripture. Go back to Eve and the apple, right? Eve and the apple. She is in the garden. They have all of this abundance all around. But the Lord said, this tree is mine. It's not for you. And she looks at that tree, and she sees it as desirable for food. Why in the world would she do that? Well, the tempter played on it, didn't he? He tempted her to, to eat, eat. And she gave way and gave to her husband who stood by idly to caving to the craving. Esau and the lentil soup. Remember this one? He, get, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Who does that? Esau. What is that? It's a caving to the craving. Israel and the water at Marah. Remember when we journeyed through the book of Exodus? The very first issue, the very, I mean, literally, they, the, the Lord parts the Red Sea, they come through the Song of Moses, and the very next verses, what do they do? Oh, the Lord must have just brought us out of Egypt to kill us off in the wilderness. We need water. And they grumble and complain against the Lord. They sin over water. Now, Satan comes himself to attack him. Here's just a note to, to, to make for us. You most likely are not that important and have never faced Satan head on. Okay? Satan is not omnipresent. He, is, he does not share in the divine attributes. He is local. He is created. He's a being. And in that, he has to rely then upon his forces, the demons that submit to him and follow his commands. So yes, you have faced temptation, and yes, it is satanic in nature, but it's quite likely that none of us are that important to, to receive the full-on attention of Satan himself. However, Jesus is. Consider that. Jesus is taking Lucifer on head to head. Now the first attack, verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, is that something Jesus could have done? Yeah. We're not questioning his power. The, the question is not Jesus' ability here. The question goes to something deeper. It's interesting to consider satanic strategies because they have a way of repeating themselves. There's nothing new under the sun. This is the same enemy that opposes us who opposed Jesus. If, if he can't get by with the first one, which is, I'm not here, there is no enemy, you're not at war, that's one of his most successful attacks in America, right? You don't see me, I don't exist, and, and then he just wreaks havoc in your life because you don't even think that you're, you're fighting. The second one, though, I think would be this, to question God. The same enemy who we see in the garden in Genesis 
chapter 3, don't we? We see this question God. Did God really say, right? Look at the question here. If you are the Son of God, who's he questioning? He's questioning the Father at the baptism. You are my beloved Son. He's, he's calling into question the very voice of the Father, the blessing of the Father over the Son. If you are the Son of God, well, then prove it. Prove it. Hmm. Give in to your cravings. Now, Jesus' body would have been reeling under this hunger. He, he would have been weak. He would have been just longing. I mean, at this point, he would have been seeing rocks and wishing they were bread. But what is the sin here that is being tempted? What is it that Satan wants Jesus to do? The sin is, do what you feel like. You do whatever you want. Follow your heart. Follow your cravings. Right? How can it be wrong? I mean, isn't Jesus hungry? What can be wrong with that? Do you get hungry? Is it wrong to be hungry? No. Does your body rule you, or do you rule your body? That's a question. That's a question that is to be asked. Which is harder? This, this is the irony of the temptation. Which is harder for Jesus? To stop the hunger with miracle bread? Is that hard? No, that's not hard. He could, he could make bread out of all the rocks in Israel. This is harder. Stay hungry, be patient, and trust the Father. This is something that Israel failed at. This is something that Adam and Eve failed at. Trust Him. Depend upon Him. Be patient. Don't grumble. Don't complain. And wait for Him. Really, this boils down to the same thing Jesus prayed in the garden. Is it going to be my will that's done here or your will that's done here? Because he is fasting under the, the direction of the Spirit's command. I, b- I believe this is an obedience on display. If he says, you know what, you're right. I'm sick of this. I'm going to do my own thing. I have right. I can make rocks into bread. At the heart of sinful rebellion is this. My will. It's my will that matters most. There's a branch of theology that even has this kind of operating subtly in it. It's about my will. True, humble, God-honoring dependence and trust says, your will be done. Come what may. Your will be done. By faith, by faith, by faith. We looked in Sunday school this morning, Hebrews 11. By faith they did what? They trusted and they obeyed. This is the temptation of Satan that meets Jesus. How did the people of Israel respond? Well, grumbling, complaining, impatience, sin. They failed. Jesus has this in mind because his quote here comes directly out of the passage of of Deuteronomy 8 that, that addresses the sin, the failure of Israel. Listen to this. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness 
okay, 40 days in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. This is about obedience, isn't it? And he humbled you and let you know hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know, here it is, here's the quote, that man does not live by bread alone. This is what Jesus quotes in his counterattack on Satan. What does man live on? This is the part that Jesus has in his mind. But, but he lives on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's my food. Obedience to my Father. There was another example of Jesus displaying this that I found later in the week. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And then they're like, "Uh, did someone give him some food? I mean, does he have some fish? And Jesus responds, my food, guys, just to be clear, my food, what sustains me, my sustenance comes from doing the will of the Father. The will of him who sent me. Accomplishing his work. That's my food. This is an amazing statement. Satan knows this delight, this joy, this submission and obedience. And he seeks to interrupt it with the temptation of craving from the physical craving of Jesus. Jesus is the victor. So, a word about fasting since we're here. Uh, this also deserves a sermon. We should probably do this at some point. I'm going to just make a list of this. Fasting is helpful. It is a good idea. Just a, a few thoughts here by John Piper. I loved his quote. Your spiritual power, I would, I would build this out. Your spiritual power, i.e. your spiritual strength, your spiritual vibrancy, um, tenacity, will be weakened to the degree that you can't say no to your bodily appetites. You will be weaker spiritually when you say yes to every craving of your body. Physical appetites are not evil. Jesus was hungry. But when they usurp the rule in your body, your spiritual power declines. This is why fasting is referred to as a spiritual discipline. Let me be clear. It's never commanded in the New Testament. There's no command that says, hey, Christians, you should fast every week, every month, every year. In the Old Testament, there was only one day commanded of fasting, the Day of Atonement. However, in the New Testament, it is seen on display throughout all kinds of examples. And Jesus himself teaches, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. They walk around moaning and groaning, oh, I'm fasting, everybody. I'm so holy and righteous. He's like, if you do it for that reason, well, good job. You have your reward. There's nothing else coming for you. But if you fast in secret to glorify God, to seek him in prayer, to allow that hunger to to stir in you a focus of dependency upon God, then it says, he says, your father will reward you. So this is a commendable practice. It's something I need to work on and do more in my own life where we, we set aside food for a time for the purpose of focusing on God. Prayer is often woven together. Prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. 
So if there's a huge decision about a job change or uh, you know, who you're going to marry or something significant like that, and you just want to have laser-sharp focus and prayer, this is a great suggestion for you. Don't fast to, to lose weight. It's a terrible idea. And don't fast like Jesus did for 40 days. Otherwise, we'll visit you in the hospital. Be wise about your fasting. But I, I would say it's wise to fast at points along the way. The second attack comes. Verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. A couple things here. Number one, this is probably true in part. True in part. There is dominion given to uh, the prince of the power of the air. The, this casting down of Satan that we're going to look at in a few weeks is real. There is a, a darkness that the world is under. This present darkness is real. He is, in a sense, reigning and ruling in, in a certain way. However, the suggestion that, that Satan has the authority to give to whomever he will uh, it suggests almost that he operates as a sovereign. And that is absolutely wrong. Because he is simply a dog on a leash in the hand of God. He has only enough room to run that God allows him. There is one sovereign in the universe, and it is God. Not Satan. To be clear, in hell, Satan doesn't rule a thing. He suffers torment. He is not in charge in the fires of hell and God in charge in the, in the, in the, the, the joys of heaven. Satan will burn in the fires of hell and suffer. He likes to make himself look more significant, more sovereign than he actually is. So there's true in some of this, and then there's false in some of this, and we've just got to say that up front. He offers this temptation. Bow to me and you can have it all, Jesus. I have everything you really want. Oh, there's a lie. Right? The mantra of worldliness to the Christian. We're really having the fun out here. It's so much better in the dark. Come on. Everything you ever wanted is out here in the dark. Why wait, Jesus? Why are you in the desert, man? If this is what following the Father looks like, don't you have something a little more grand and glorious in view? I mean, you're hungry. You're tired, you're in the desert, you should live for the moment. Let me give you what you really need. Hey, I'll give you your best life now. Why does that sound familiar? Why live like a pauper when you could live like a prince? You want a throne? You want a kingdom? You want glory? I can give you all of that. Just bow to me. Bow and worship me. Oh, what a fool Satan is. What a fool. I'll give you a crown. That's what you want? You want a crown? Come have a crown 
without a cross. Forget this suffering. Why suffer? This isn't, this isn't the, the plan that I would have. If I was going to send you to be the spectacular Savior, I wouldn't have you suffering like this. I'd have you living like a king. Hmm. There is in our day nothing new, and yet it's been repackaged very successfully. It is what I want to refer to as the satanic prosperity gospel. There is on your TV a channel nearly 100% dedicated to this poison from the pits of hell. There are even books in our Christian bookstores that propagate this lie, this darkness. The New York Times bestseller list frequently is topped by this kind of garbage. I am sick of it. I get off the plane in Uganda, a, p- a poverty-ridden nation. You know, the first book I saw smiling back at me was Joel Osteen, promising the Ugandans their best life now for 1995. It's satanic. I want to be really specific here today. I think it's important that we as believers understand the agents of the darkness. He masquerades as an angel of light. They come in and they look amazing. This is a list of, of, of workers of the enemy. Okay, Kenneth Copeland is one of the most uh, wealthy and successful prosperity gospel preachers. He has led Hundreds of thousands of people to the fires of hell with a false gospel. And he's made millions doing it. Joel Osteen, maybe more familiar in our day, same thing. Benny Hinn, a faith healer. It's all about healing. For $200, I'll heal you. Except for if you're really sick or you're really hurting, then his helpers, they usher people out. The people who are actually in need are ignored, but they'll take their money too. Todd White, more of the hipster healer. Poison, toxic. T.D. Jakes often makes a foray into this prosperity gospel in a lot of what he teaches. It's this garbage, this, this promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar. We should know him by the name, right? It's obvious. Bill Johnson down in Redding, California, an entire ministry dedicated to this supernatural focus on the phenomena. It's, it's fabricated to make people think that there's, the Spirit is blowing gold dust on them and making diamonds appear. Like that's blessing. Chopped up plastic and fake diamonds. You think God gives fake diamonds? This stuff is toxic and demonic. Paula White very connected to President Trump. Be discerning. Prosperity gospel is everywhere. If you come to Jesus to get money, then Jesus is not your God. Money is. Can we just be clear? It's simple. It's straightforward. If you bend the knee to Jesus to get your bank filled up, to get healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, You are not worshiping God. You are not worshiping and bowing your knee to Jesus. 
You are coming to worship yourself. How's Jesus going to respond? He says this, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Only Him shall you serve. Hmm. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, He says this, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You want to come to Jesus? Come and ready, be ready to suffer. Come lay your life down. Come and die is the message of Jesus. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Go pour yourself out on the mission field. Give, give your blood, your sweat, and your tears the rich young ruler, give all that you have. That's the display of worship. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you want your best life now, you're heading for hell. That's just got to be clear in our minds. Join me in prayer that this toxic poison that is exported from our nation around the world would be brought to an end soon. Now, the third attack. Verse 9, he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle in the temple. And he said to him, if you are the Son of God, there it is, it's a question again, well, prove it. If, if you are the Son of God, well, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, oh, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, that's interesting. A change in tactic here on the third. This is the southern wall of the temple, uh, an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. Solomon's portico right here. Uh, get this out so you can see a little better. Up here is Solomon's portico, and then right here in the corner... Uh, of the pinnacle is what it was re referred to as, I believe, is where the trumpet would blow at the end of the Sabbath. And so the trumpet, in fact, there's a stone that we saw, I got a picture of it, that was thrown down in 70 AD from right up here, and it's down here now at the bottom. And we took a picture of it, and it said uh, for the trumpeter uh, to stand, something along the lines of the trumpet, it's just a trumpet stone, okay? So it's likely that either Jesus was here or over here, and taken there by Satan, somehow uh, transported in that sense, whether he was visible to other people, I, I would, would highly doubt. But in any sense, he's, he's there, and he's looking out over this, this drop. Over here is the, the Kidron Valley, and the Garden of Gethsemane would be back this way. This is a farther drop, and so scholars often will say it's probably likely that they were on the southeast corner of the temple mount it certainly would be death to plunge and throw yourself off the corner of that into that ravine or even down to the rocks down here jesus has shown in these and i would say probably others other temptations an unshakable reliance upon god and his word okay so if you're satan and you want to bring the attack and sharpen it even more what do you want to do would he even dare to quote the Bible? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
He is an angel of light. Satan knows your Bible. He knows it well. He, he has studied it for all of these years. He knows the Bible. He knows what Jesus would have had memorized. And he literally quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12 to Jesus to tempt him to do this. As if to say, why don't you, Jesus, show everyone how much you really trust your father and throw yourself down from here? You see the, the irony of this temptation? It's a stupid temptation when you think about it. Jump off this thing and see if you live. Like, that, that's dumb. But the heart of it, what, what packs the punch in it, is he's quoting the promise of God. And he's seeking to use it against Jesus because that's where Jesus has his hope. This might be one of the most successful and brilliant attacks of Satan. Dress up like religious, sanctified, wonderful, sweet-sounding preaching. Say a little bit of truth. Quote a few verses. And then lead him to hell. He still succeeds at this. Which is why we have to know our Bibles. We have to be discerning. The truth with a twist. That's his favorite thing. Truth with a twist. Every heresy has an element of truth. If you study church history, you find this all the time. Every you know, noteworthy heresy, every damnable heresy that you can fall prey to always has some element of truth. Just like every dollar that is counterfeited seeks to look like the real. That's what makes it a good counterfeit. Satan is an angel of light who is dark. This is Jesus' answer. Brilliant. Jesus answered him and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is said. He quotes another verse. And then the devil, when he had ended every temptation, departed from him until an opportune time. This is over. He finishes it. Now, Jesus was referencing something I think that is noteworthy. In Exodus 17, when Israel was thirsty and hungry once again, and the water from the rock was brought. Remember this? The water, the Lord split the rock and he brought water for his people. Before that, they, it says they tested the Lord. And this is the test, they said. Hey, Moses, hey, is the Lord really here or not? Is he among us or not? They're referencing in their minds what they witnessed in, in Egypt. Hey, if he can split all the, the waters wide open and, and, and decimate the most powerful nation on earth, hey, just put him to the test. Prove that you are here, God. We need water. That is not faith. That's manipulation. You see the difference? God, you prove yourself. We will presume upon your power and your work. You prove yourself and give us what we want. Wow. Jesus saw right through it. Don't put your God to the test. Trust him. Rely upon him in humility. Wait for him and he will come. Hmm. So our response this morning, I, I pray that there are many ways already that the Lord has given uh, insight into how this can be applied. There might be some of you who have books in your home that you need to go home 
and rid yourself of. Some of you maybe have, have taken some of this teaching in and you need to kind of begin to purge that from your thinking and your theology. All of us face temptation every single day. Every day. For that, I would give us two things. Number one, Jesus won the battle. He is the victor here. He's the victor over sin, Satan, death, and hell. He defeated Satan. He disarmed him by succeeding where we failed. He, he is the victor. It can be said that by faith, everywhere Jesus succeeded, we succeed. It's the only way we can succeed because his righteousness through the good news of the gospel is now credited to us by faith. By faith. His obedience is our obedience by faith. That's amazing. That's how sinners can be justified, declared righteous. It's the only way. We're going to sing a closing song in just a minute. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what does a Christian do? Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. This is my hope. This is my answer to temptation and the accusation that I don't measure up. He's right in the sense that I am a sinner, but, but all of my sin was made an end of on the cross by Jesus. Because the sinless Savior died, the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's the gospel. That's the only hope for sinners. And that's our joy in the face of temptation. Number two, the book of Hebrews really draws this out. Jesus knows our battles. He knows what it's like to face the enemy. He knows what, is, uh, what it's like to, to have this weakness of humanity. He, he isn't just looking from a distance. He says, I was there. I feel your pain. I, I understand what it's like to live in this broken, dark world. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm, hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How does that, how does that meet us then? What, what should we do with that? Draw near, friends. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of temptation, attack, desperation, weakness, need. We have a high priest who is there exactly in that moment. This is one of the primary 
functions of prayer. Lord, help me, I'm weak. Help me, here I am again. He's coming at me again. The flesh is weak. Meet me in my weakness with your strength. Help me. Stand firm. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What a promise. What an encouragement. Every day of your week, that is true for you, Christian. Every day. Now, there's one more piece. Faith is displayed in a confident obedience and submission to His commandments. We saw this on display in Sunday school. By faith, they obeyed. So, this is the command. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Tuck under Him, joyfully, happily. Seek to honor and obey Him and resist the devil. Don't give way to Him. Don't don't allow your cravings to, to rule your life. Resist Him. And he will flee from you. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Draw near to God, and here's a promise, he will draw near to you. So yes, trust in the finished work of Christ. Yes, know that he is an advocate for you. He understands, and he is there to help, and he calls you to put sin to death in your life. In His power. Obey joyfully, depending upon Him. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts soar in this victory. The record of history is a broken record. Temptation, sin, failure. We fail, O Lord. We fall short. Thank you for our Savior who did not. Thank you for his victory. Thank you for his triumph. Thank you for his dependency upon you and your word and your spirit. Oh, make us like him, oh God. Make us like him. Trusting, waiting, looking, seeking to obey you. Humble, longing to do your will. And Father, we dare not face this foe on our own. He is way bigger than we are, far too powerful, and yet we do not because we have this triumph in Jesus. And Satan then becomes one who can be resisted, and he flees from us. Oh, Lord, what a joy that is. What confidence we have that we can come close to you and find grace and mercy in our time of need. Father, if there are those in this congregation this morning who have been caving to cravings. I pray that this week would be different, not because of some personal internal resolve, but because of your power and your victory, your triumph through Jesus Christ. Make us the free people you intend us to be and give us victory this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.